To whom much is given, much is required. Part of that requirement is sharing. Culture is the heartbeat within our lives, and it's at the core of so many things. While we live in a time when we are starving for wisdom, I welcome you to your wisdom retreat at Culture Raises Us. Vasco, welcome, 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 man. Good to see your face. Um, For our listeners and viewers today, today's guest I was actually just recently introduced to as someone who is definitely a modern-day cultivator, I say, in the space of changing the culture around cannabis um, as we know it. Um, Quante Bosco Adams, welcome again. Thank you for having me, No, no, no. Thank you in advance for sharing your story and your great work. Um, For those of you who are not familiar um, with you, I want to give a very, very high-level breakdown around who you are before you kind of walk us through your journey and take us through how you've made an obligation, literally, to use your story and your journey in a positive way to counter the negativity in the world today, which we talked about. Um, So look, Bosco was sentenced to 35 years in prison for possession of marijuana um, and fought his way to freedom 19 years early. Story of all that took place in between I'll let Bosco paint that picture because it was truly, it will actually truly blow your mind. And it really sets the tone, I think, for how he will be instrumental in shaping culture around cannabis moving forward. So with that, um, Bosco, we usually start these sessions by asking our guests, you know, when you hear culture, what does that mean to you? Uh this is a way in life, a way in life for for different people, depending on where you come from. And for me, when I think of culture, I just think of my upbringing and just the way in life for the people who I grew up with, family, and I'm from Compton. So right. culture means that to me. And of course, it can mean different things for different people. One thing that I like to think about is sometimes I think some people have the wrong perception of what culture Eh. means for us as young black men. And some people try to give us a certain identity. Yeah, sometimes we're a lot of times I think within our culture, we've taken on identities that are not really who we are. And without us knowing any better or having strong people to give us and help us identify what our culture really is, we tend to take what media in corporate America gives us and we take that as our culture and we run with it. And Years later, we find ourselves falling flat on our face because that's not who we really are. You know what? Gay banging, gay yeah. banging. That's not really our culture as black people. That's not. That's not who we are. But it was something that was given to us, and we've run with it. it th- this is exactly why I think you're going to be critical with changing the scope of how things are perceived in this space. And I'm so glad that was even part of your definition of culture, right? 
um, it's really synonymous with the work that that you are now doing, given your background. So, so with that being said, why don't you tell us how it all started uh, on that day? I believe it was back in two thousand and four uh, when you stepped into that van that you later found out was part of this reverse sting operation. And just give people a lot of sight to a little bit of your story. Yeah, so two thousand four January, I was arrested for attempting to possess marijuana, and then. I was eventually sentenced to 35 years in federal prison. And at the time of my arrest, I found out that my ex-girlfriend, whom I'd broken up with three weeks earlier, was pregnant. So my first and only child was about to enter the world while I was essentially spending the rest of my life in prison. I grew up without my father. Seeing many other people in my community grow up without their father. And over the years, I was able to identify and recognize how that can have a negative impact on a child growing up in environments like mine. Mm -hmm. And wanting to be somebody great and be a man, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hey, it, it's somebody respected. I always told myself that I wouldn't repeat that cycle. Man. That I would be there for my children. If I brought a child into the world, I wanted to be there and break that stereotype that surrounds a lot of us and communities like mine. But there I was, stuck in the cell. Unable to break this cycle. I was instead, I was perpetuating it. And it hurt me. I started feeling like a loser. I never felt that type of pain just to feel like I was totally worthless. I was going to die in prison. And I was not only going to die, but I was going to die a worthless man, somebody who propagated and repeated a cycle that I know right. affects our community. Right. And so it hurt. So I decided I was gonna break out of prison. That was the only way that I can get out. Break and out of be there federal for myself. prison. Yeah. Break out of federal prison. Now something that is not done. <laughs> it has it ever been done before? Yeah, it's, it's been done before. Alcatraz, escape from Alcatraz was a shuttle in prison. Uh, you know, a lot of times it happens from lower security facilities, though. You yeah. have where people are at camps and they walk away or they're locked in a prison where you can just hop a chance and run away. Right, but yours but, is a high security. Yeah. We're talking, this is a high security federal prison. What detention center, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> Continue. Locked in a cell gates around it, all of that. Yes. And so I tried to escape and got caught. And I was placed in solitary confinement. And when I was in solitary confinement, I tried to escape again. This time I got caught coming out of an exhaust fan about 3 a.m. at night. Some guards had the well, some actually cops happened to be outside smoking cigarettes and they heard the loud commotion and bangs and 
And there I was crawling out an exhaust fit. And so I was captured, uh, caught that is. So they transferred me to this maximum security prison, locked me in a cell 24 hours a day. Inside this cell, they had a camera to monitor me and watch me and make sure that I wouldn't ever try to escape again. And I escaped from that cell in that prison and I got away. And that, that started the story. That's how I became infamous from that point on because they started calling me Houdini. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, National Geographic Channel eventually did a documentary about it. And from there, it just things just started spiraling into who I am today. Not who I am, but the media attention that I started receiving. After that, I self-published a book, produced a movie about my story, fired my attorney, represented myself, got myself out of prison, got out, uh, started working in productions, produced this feature film, uh, documentary. Uh, I'm running with it now. No, I, I, I thank you again for, for sharing even a high level because you, you glossed over the fact that upon escaping and and breaking out of this this level federal prison that you did um and coming back one of the things that you then did was you literally fired all of your legal staff and then taught yeah. yourself how to represent yourself and that then got you to reducing your sentence by what 19 years yeah 19 years take and a half to be exact phenomenal Phenomenal. And the, the other core piece that I don't want anybody to lose is your breakout desire was rooted in your daughter. Correct. And so what, when I think about, you know, I, th I really think everyone has their version of a breakout of federal prison scenario or circumstance or situation, right? And by no means am I recommending that anyone break out of prison for the record. Well, <laughs> but, but, but what I am saying that we all have something that will take a level of commitment, right? Um, to achieve that many could never fathom, you know, and require you to stretch beyond what you ever even knew or saw. So with your journey, You've had to tap into something that allowed for this and all that you're embarking on, right? What is that seed that you watered to do such things? Yeah, and that that's the that's the uh unique thing about it is I never once thought that I could break out of prison. Mm -hmm. I never once thought that I could rep represent myself in federal court. I never once thought that I can produce a movie. Never once. You know, a lot of things, you know, we don't think about it or we don't know that we can do it until we're actually required to do it. There you go. And and it goes down to that that hunger. And sometimes people ask me, did I ever believe that I would get out of prison? And sometimes mentally, no. Sometimes... It, Sometimes you have those thoughts that's telling you like, no, you're not going to get out. It's not going to happen. But then there's something 
that is deeper than those thoughts is something deep down inside of your soul mm. that tells you that you are. And I think what that is, is hope. Dang. I think hope really is something that's deeply rooted with inside of you. It's not something, it's not a mental state. I think some people confuse hope to be a mental state. And I think it's something more visceral It's something more is this deep embedded in your soul is something deeper than the mind. And when you have that and you find yourself in situations that see nurtures the mind to start becoming proactive and doing certain things to try to bring it to fruition. And I think that's what it was with me. It's just that deep hunger that was inside of me that made me like, look, I got to do it. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Right. And that, you know, even, even at times when my mind was telling me that, you know, it, it's not going to happen, that something inside of me kept saying that you got to make it happen. That's right. And it's sort of like when you're running a race, when you're running, a lot of times your mind tells you like, look, you're tired. You need to quit. Uh, but there can be something inside of you that just pushes you along and you find yourself accomplishing some things that you probably never imagined you can ever accomplish. Yeah. That, that word hope uh, is such a powerful one. Um, with regards to this conversation and just in general, I, I think if, if your hope is ever taken away from you, that is probably going to be one of the worst moments ever, right? Because if you don't have hope, you don't think things are possible. And it sounds like you have, you are tapped in to the essence of hope to the point where all that you are going to do is going to be possible because you know, you have this, 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 this feeling and this connection to something being possible through the lens of hope. Yeah. And then as, is when you look at it in, from a divine lens, it's like you have two different parts of you as a human being. And a lot of times you have this mental existence and then you have this spiritual existence. Is it? And a lot of times this spiritual existence is the divine existence. This is the, the energy that's connected to higher power. Yes, and then a lot of times this mental existence sometimes can compete with this spiritual existence. And the goal is to make sure that the mental and the spiritual are all one. Because that's when you become your greatest self. Man. And I like to analogize it to sometimes because the, the mental can be fed with information. If I sit in front of a TV and I'm fed certain information, my mind's going to think that. But if I have this spiritual connection with God and the universe, it's going to, that can never be corrupted unless I allow my mind That's to right. just shut that part down. Man. And so I think a lot of times it's this divine to where my, my energy and connection to higher power was stronger than my mind. So even when at times when my mind felt negative, when I was saying negative thoughts, 
when I looked around and I saw things that were negative and when the judge said you're going to spend this much time in prison, the mind can dwell on that, but that spiritual connection was like, nah, that's not what's happening here. No. And so no. I think that's, uh, that's, that's what, what takes place is when you have that spiritual connection and you, you, you listen to what's inside of you spiritually. That's right. You tend to find the answers to a lot of questions. You find solutions to problems and you get a lot further. Yeah. And, and to be honest, you know, part of doing God's work, I think, requires taking these trials of those that have what may seem to be insurmountable circumstances, similar to yours from a human standpoint, right? But from a God perspective, it's really a part of his ability to deliver miracles through his vessels of people and things when you think about it. And I look at your story and there's so many elements of miracle working, so many. And to be honest, that was beyond your pay grade, but it was very reflective of his grace. And so when you were going through many of these trials, literally and figuratively, did you still have like a sense that he was working through this all for you? Or were you feeling like you were on this journey alone or solo? And it goes back to what I was saying mentally and spiritually. Spiritually, you feel that connection. I feel the connection. Mentally at times, we like, no, it isn't there. But that's because of what's been fed into my mind based on my circumstances, environment, and information that is given to me. And the more I dwell on that mentally, the more I would tell myself, like, nah, this God is not with me. The universe is not working with me, you know? Amen. But when I tell myself that there's still that spiritual connection that's like, that is uncomfortable with those thoughts. And, and so it becomes a fight with myself. And the, 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 the side that I feed the most tends to win the most. That's right. So if I constantly dwell on them negative thoughts and I constantly feed that mental state, that state would, that's who I would be. That's right. So that's the person you would get. But the more I fed the spiritual side of me and the spiritual energy and state, that's who you would get. And I found that when I fed the spiritual side of me, that's when I went. That's when I began to win the most. And that's when these so-called miracles uh, take place and happen. And I'm so glad you made the choice because every one of us have a choice. We can choose to put our energies in places that will be more beneficial, or we can choose to put our energy into places that might not deliver the same type of outcome in terms of positivity. It, it really all is a choice. And, and you made a very intentional choice to feed the positivity and the possibilities and starve the negativity and the doubt, which it sounds so simple Yet I, I find for us as a people, it's, and this is all people, it can be very, very difficult, right? But it really is a choice. And it's not really based around the circumstances around her. Because you can change the way in which you engage with your circumstances just by making the choice of how you choose to look and deal with it, which you are so, That's true. You are so locked into. And I love that. 
and, and you have a quote that I, I wanted to share where you said, freedom is much more than the protections of a constitution drafted by slave owners. It's the rational self-control of the mind and the unrestricted ability to express and enjoy the heart's desire. And this is so powerful for so many reasons and for so many different people, to be honest. Walk me through where you were in life when this was put on your spirit. <laughs> I was in solitary confinement. And I was writing my I was writing my memoir yes. at the time. And it's funny. So the National Geographic channel, when they produced that documentary and they aired it all around the world, I started getting mail from people. People were inspired and touched by my story. They were sympathetic to the fact that I had so much time for marijuana. And they also thought that I was smart, that I was a brilliant person. They thought that I was a good person who deserved to be free, essentially. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I had this, we had this criminal justice system, which said totally different, said that I deserved to be in prison for the rest of my life. And I feel like I had to share my story with the world because I didn't, Again, there was no indication that I would be getting out of prison. That's right. And so I felt that I had an obligation if I were going to die in prison and I needed to share my story in a way that hopefully people could learn more about me as a person and understand how this kid who dropped out of school at the age of 13 and grew up in this game uh infested environment and drug infested environment in this so-called culture of violence and gangs and whatever else you want to call it be perceived as smart by some people who don't even know him yeah. based on what they saw in the documentary and so i feel like a lot of people didn't know my story mm -hmm. perhaps the courts Perhaps the criminal justice system didn't understand me. Perhaps that's why they assumed I deserved to die in prison. So I just wanted to be vulnerable and just share my story with the world. Hopefully I can have an impact on the way judges perceive people coming from communities like mine, Congress perceive people coming from communities like mine, and how the world perceives us and to give them an understanding on how we become the people that we end up being. How do we get into this lifestyle? How do we find ourselves in prison? And I didn't know where I was going with the book. I just wanted to just share my story. But the more I became vulnerable and the more I put things on paper, the better I feel. Yes. I started feeling free. Yes. The freest I've ever felt in my life just by writing and sharing my story on a piece of paper for the world to see. And that was freedom. And so I started thinking like, this feels better than making money. <laughs> about that? Well, the, the, that's feels... a currency. You can't, put, you can't put a price tag on that currency of vulnerability and transparency, where, by the way, 
there is strength in being vulnerable and transparent. Because when you're putting everything yeah. else on the table, you're making it very clear that there's nothing that can really harm or affect you because you're comfortable with putting everything out there. And, yeah. and it's beautiful. And, then, and you said the word, the freedom, the freedom of it. So your transparency and your vulnerability not only is helping you to become the better version of who you are, but it's going to help so many more people become better versions of who they are and better contributors to what? The respective cultures that we so love, adore, and cherish in a major, major way. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, the upbringing in these different communities and different cultures and, you know, that this drug, I don't want to say world, but just the elements of it. And I, and I want to share, I want to share some cannabis facts, right? So now we're at a place where the use of cannabis for medical purposes is legal in 37 states, right? Recreational yeah. cannabis is legal in 21 states plus D.C. Another 10 states have decriminalized its use. Cannabis will be a $1.6 billion industry by 2024. Currently, black cannabis entrepreneurs account for less than 2% of the legal industry, right? So I'm, I say these stats, and I have a very close friend who says we're in a season of reset. And as I hear these stats, and I hear your story, I realize that there's a de definite, definite, definite reset that's needed around the culture of cannabis and the consistent positioning across society. I, I feel like your work will play a significant role in helping to shift this reset. If you can describe your ideal reset of this culture, what would that look and feel like? Of cannabis? Cannabis, the whole, the whole industry, the whole deal. How would you reset this whole thing? Especially given the fact that you have so many people of color who are still incarcerated for that of that's that that fear is the main thing. I think the first thing to do to reset is to free everybody from prison who are in jail who's in there for cannabis. For sure. Everybody in prison for cannabis should not be in prison at all. I don't care how much it was. If your crime is cannabis, you shouldn't be in prison. And not only just cannabis, some other drugs. I mean, I just think the entire this war on drugs is is out is outrageous. It, it does more harm than it does good. And uh, you have some good individuals whose lives are flipped upside down because of the war on drugs. You had people spending the rest of their lives in prison, their children growing out here without parents because of the war on drugs. And when you look at it as it applies to cannabis, where you have people making, as you say, one billion, uh, over a billion dollars from a substance that people are still sitting in prison for, it's clearly injustice. It's not fair, and that needs to be fixed. And that I think when it comes to cannabis, that's my biggest stance on it. Nobody should be in prison for it, and the the field should be even for for blacks to get involved in the industry as it is for. And it's not just so much black, but just the poor. Yep. 
because it seems like the rich are just swooping in and just consuming everything. And I don't think that was the intention for the for a lot of these states that actually decriminalize or legalized recreational use. Some of them, you know, the social equity programs are supposed to be taking place. And I think the reset needs to be to where those particular people are given the license they need and the funding they need to get their businesses up and running. Facts. So what's the work that you're doing now in all this space, given your journey? I'd love for you to share what it is you're doing so that people can get line of sight to that and hopefully galvanize around some of these efforts, given the fact that, again, you're using your story, your journey as a means to bring hope and positivity in a world that has a ton of darkness and negativity. So I want to give you a platform to kind of share that. Speaking, you know, my main thing is to just speak and share my story and to show the world who I am. And also just to, we have to set an example that if we're given the opportunity, particularly me as a young black man and a person who has been in prison for marijuana, is given the opportunity to be involved in this industry and to be involved in shaping the narrative of it, that we're going to do the right thing with it. And so I like to share my story in a way to show people that I'm responsible and that, and it also just shed a, a new light on, on who we are and to show that we're deserving and worthy of the best of opportunities. And that's the, that's the end, end goal of mine. I just want to prove all of the doubters wrong and the people who believe that we don't deserve it or the people who believe that we supposed to be in prison for certain crimes, I want to prove them wrong because we're more valuable to society than we are to they're sitting in a prison cell. I love that. I love that. And and I ask, well, I don't need to ask you this because it's obviously I feel your purpose at this point. It sounds like you're locked in and you you know your purpose that God has for you. Am I being, am I correct with that assessment? 100%. I love that. Definitely. I love that. And, and so if one of the things... I'm a father of three uh, girls, um, so I could just imagine, you know, what that was like for you during those early years. Um, but knowing how much your daughter means to you, I would love for you to tell me, how was your first Father's Day in person with your daughter? <laughs> it was, uh, it's, it's beautiful. So my first Father's Day, we were actually in New Orleans filming for the movie. And I went out to New Orleans ahead of my daughter to start setting up and start getting things ready for filming. And so she actually flew out there like a couple of days before Father's Day. And so my first Father's Day was in New Orleans and it was just me and her. We went out, chilled ate at a restaurant and just walked around and just, it was a beautiful moment. That's dope. Was she yeah. able to come on set to see this being created? Yeah, she came on for sure. Yeah. Did you walk her, did you walk her through some of the story as she's watching it? Yeah. Yeah. What was that for like? Sure. 
I mean, she's she she she's uh she's energetic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times she thinks she knows it all already. <laughs> oh oh, let me give you a fun fact, bro. It gets worse as they get older. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what? So she had a POV yeah, on was, everything. That, yeah. Yeah. We even she even went inside when we were filming here in LA. She went inside of a prison cell. Wow. Yeah. What was that experience like? She just wanted to experience it because I spent so much time in there. Yes. So she wanted to just go in there and just sit inside and be inside of the cell just to see how I feel. And which I, I feel like she was probably a different person after she got out of that. Yeah, and because it's funny when some when she used to come see me, sometimes she would want to come back to the cell with me in prison. Like there was times when she didn't want to leave, she would just be crying. She literally and really wanted to come inside the prison and live in there with me. Nothing like daughters. I mean, children in general, but for fathers and their girls, it, it's a whole whole different thing. So as I'm listening to you say this, like I feel my heart and my spirit. Um, and I feel like I'm present in that moment and feeling that energy of your not even grasping the, the gravity of if you go back there with your father, the circumstances and the environment in which you're going to be in. Like, exactly. There's no, yeah. there's no care. No, no. Under, but that's also the beauty of children, bro. You know, it is. children are an unfiltered, beautiful creation that get influenced by external circumstances and internal. And when I say internal, I'm talking within the home. And so I, I think that's another reason why it's so critical to watch what you put in front or around your children. One thousand percent. Yeah. And so yeah. I love the purity of her just wanting so much to be with daddy that she would would say, Willie, I want to go back with you to yourself, not even getting the gravity of you have no idea what's back here and what's in this environment that is not for you, nor would I ever want or allow you to be in it. Because she, she knew that that's how it's supposed to be. She knew that <laughs> a father and a daughter are supposed to be together. She knew that this was not normal. You're not supposed to take a father out of the family equation. And so intuitively and spiritually, she knew that I was supposed to be there, that we were supposed to be together. Even though she didn't have any examples showing her that that's what supposed to happen. She didn't have any examples showing that this is how, you know, thing is supposed to be, but she just knew that, you know, I was supposed to be in there. That's right. And so she was willing to do whatever to be there. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's just a trip though. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that piece with us. Um, we, we usually close these sessions, you know, because with this question around, we always talk about planting seeds. And I think you even were talking about the planting of seeds earlier. We used the analogy of, you know, farmers planting seeds and watering it. And that's when you then have these amazing harvests um, and reap the benefits of all the positive 
reinforcement and energy that you put into these seeds. And I would love for you to share three seeds that you would want to leave with stewards of culture moving forward. The three things that you think are the most important seeds to water and be cognizant of as they go through their respective journeys. The first one is feed the spirit and soul more than you feed the mind. Because that's who we are. The mind, the mind, the mind is anything that information gives to it. The mind can be anything that information gives to it. But the spirit and soul is who it is and what it is. And that's a deeper connection to who we really are. So feed that soul before you feed the mind. Another thing is to change our perception. Life in the world is how we perceive it. And a lot of times our experiences that we, the experiences we've had shape the way that we perceive the world. And if things are not working for us, then perhaps those experiences have misled us in, in blinded us so we need to change the way that we perceive things and if we start perceiving things more optimistically and positively then we'll get better results in life and the last thing is we are who we are we're not who they say we are yeah listen um know who we are those are three very key seeds that we all can apply and i I want to thank you for those i also want to thank you for being the steward um that you are and going through what you've gone through to now be your testimony um which as you know believers it is on us to share our stories in an effort to be a testimony of how amazing he is and his works are. And given your journey, you are exemplifying sharing your testimonies in an effort to show how amazing he is. And, you know, I also want to make it very clear that nobody is a perfect human being. None of us. And we are all supposed to take all of our, you know, imperfections because we're perfectly imperfect. And we're supposed to take these elements and figure out a way that we can contribute it to society in the most positive and beautiful way. And I sincerely thank you for for being a reflection and an example of that. Thank you for having me. I mean, the more we can talk and the more we can speak positively, the more we can redefine this culture (laughs) and show them who we really are. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, for sure.